And uh, if you read the book of First John, uh, you may initially find it a little bit hard to follow the flow of his logic. Uh, it's not written like, say, the book of Romans, which uses uh, Aristotelian or Greek kind of logic. It's a linear logic. He starts with his thesis and then he uh, works it out step by step to come to his conclusion. Uh, John writes in a different way and it's more of a, a Jewish or Hebrew way of thinking. Uh, instead of going in a straight line, John tends to go in circles as he goes through. And so as you read through the book, it seems like he keeps saying the same thing over and over again, but each time with a, a slightly different emphasis. So as we work our way through this book, it, it may feel that we're saying the same things uh, week after week in, in some sense. But that's because these are the important things that uh, we need to know, that we need to remember, and so they're said again and again. In this passage, we learn a bit more about John's reason for writing this letter. Uh, in 2 verse 21, he says, I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. And then in 26, I write these things about those who are trying to deceive you. Among these churches to which he writes, there was a battle going on, and it was a battle for the truth. didn't take long. Uh, once the gospel was going out, uh, once churches were being planted by the apostles, didn't take long for false versions of that gospel to also go out. Uh, and for opportunists to take up this this new phenomenon of Christianity uh, and to use it for their own uh, advantage. Uh, some people would go out and preach the gospel and then ask for large sums of money in return. Or they would use it to lead people astray and to gain power and control over them. Jesus himself predicted that false Christs and false prophets would come. And many of the New Testament letters were written against these teachers and false gospels. So we don't need to be fearful when we hear about distortions of the gospel uh, being taught. It's been happening for 2,000 years. Jesus said it would happen. And so Jesus, who whose church we are, he's big enough to deal with those problems. We don't have to be fearful, but we do have to be aware and we do have to be on our guard. We shouldn't think that the problem with false teaching was just an early church problem. Right through the history of the church, as I said, uh, new and strange and misleading teachings always been an issue for us to contend with. And the church is called not just to proclaim the gospel to the world, but we're called to guard the gospel. It has been entrusted to us. And this is so important, not so that we can boast that we've got it right, but because the gospel is the power of God to salvation. Any distortion or any watering down of the gospel won't save people. It won't set people free. It'll only bind them up into legalism or looking for some other method or solution as a solution to their, their sin apart from faith alone in Christ alone. 
So John is passionate about making sure that we don't fall for anything that takes us away from the truth about Jesus. Four things that I want us to see in this passage this morning. Firstly, uh, the call to know the real nature of the battle that we face. Secondly, uh, not to be fearful about the coming of an antichrist. Thirdly, prepare ourselves for the coming of Christ. And fourthly, rest in and live out our identity as children of God. So firstly, we need to know the the real nature of the battle that we face. It's a battle for truth. And while these uh, readers and us need to be on the watch for false teachers, John says that the real battle is actually a battle in the heart. It's a battle of where our affections lie. He says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. It's very black and white, isn't it? We either love the Father or we love the world. We can't love both at the same time. Jesus said, no one can serve two masters. He'll either hate the one and love the other or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. So do not love the world. Instead, love the Father. Now this phrase isn't referring to the physical world in which we live. It's not referring to creation as such. All human beings are called to care for the creation. The creation that was, is good. We've been placed here as students, as stewards and students. Now it's not referring to the, the physical world and it's not referring to the people who live in the world. Because everyone is also called to love their neighbour, even to love their enemies. But as we saw last week, this phrase, word, world, is also is used to refer to the human system, the system of culture and government and society that operates apart from or in opposition to God. Another way of saying it is that the world is humanity as a whole in sophisticated, organised rebellion against God. Here's how Jesus spoke about the world in John 3. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world and the people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. The world is humanity living in darkness, unwilling to come into the light of God that's been clearly shown in Jesus. Now, in case we feel that that statement sounds harsh and judgmental, we need to remember that it comes just after the world's most famous Bible verse. God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Now, is that a contradiction? We're told not to love the world, but then we see here that God loves the world so much that he gave his only son. Well, it's not a contradiction when we notice that it's uh, those in the world, it's the people in the world 
that are the objects of the Father's love. It's the people whom he calls to believe in his Son who are the objects of his love, not the, not the system itself. John gives us two reasons why we cannot love both the Father and the world at the same time. In verse 16, it's because loving the world means living for ourselves. He talks about the desires of the flesh or physical gratification, the desires of the eyes, which is a intellectual or an emotional gratification in things, and the pride of life. I think our reading on the screen said pride of possessions, but literally it's the pride of life, which is about ego and gratification and, and status. They're all ultimately about myself, aren't they? What I can get, not what I can give. It's about loving myself, not loving God or my neighbour. In the Genesis story of how sin came into the world, we see the first woman looking at the tree that God had said, do not eat from this tree or you'll die. And she sees that it was good for food, There's the desire of the flesh. It was a delight to the eyes. There's the desire of the eyes. And the tree was desired to make one wise. There's the pride of life. The man and woman wanted to get for themselves from that tree what they could only get and should only get from God himself. But we also see Jesus right at the start of his ministry being taken out into the desert and being tempted by the devil and he faced three temptations in these three areas. But unlike the first human beings and unlike us, he resisted. If you are the son of God and you're feeling really hungry, Turn these stones into bread, the the desire of the flesh. See all the kingdoms of the world. If you bow down and worship me, I'll give them to you, the desire of the eyes. And uh, get up on the, the top of the temple and throw yourself down and God will rescue you and everyone will, will see your great power and, uh, and praise you for what you have done and that you must be from God, the pride of life. But he resisted. Why was he able to resist? Well, not primarily because he's God in the flesh, not because he has superhuman powers, but because his love for the Father was undivided. He loved the Father, not the world or the things of the world. His affections were on the Father. There was no room in his heart for an affection towards the world or an affection towards self-ambition. Jesus also faced the same temptations at the cross. As he was bearing our sin, our shame, our guilt in himself. Again, he faced those temptations and he resisted on our behalf as he was there as our substitute 
So we can't live, we can't live for the world and the Father at the same time because to live for the world, to love the world is to live for ourselves. But to love the Father is to live, to live and to love Him, uh, not ourselves. The second reason he gives is because the world is transitory in verse 17. We might think that the human civilizations that we've built are going to go on forever. It's kind of our default reckoning. We're not expecting tomorrow morning to wake up and find out that everything has crumbled around us. If you look at the sweep of human history, though, that's the way it happens, isn't it? Everyone says, look at what we've built, and then it all comes crashing down around their ears, and then the next thing comes up to replace it. We think we're going to go on forever, but God has other plans. One day, the kingdoms of this world will be replaced with his kingdom. Jesus will appear and exercise all authority. He will set up a reign of perfect peace and justice and love. So John's reasoning here is why invest your life in something that's temporary when you have access to that which is permanent. And notice what he says, that while the world is passing away, it is whoever does the will of God who abides forever. He's actually less interested in the system and the institution than he is in the people themselves. It's the people who will endure forever. It is us who will be clothed with immortality. And the new creation, the new heavens and the earth will continue forever. Why? Because it is the eternal dwelling place of God with his people. So the real battle is the battle of the heart. It's not a an us and them kind of battle. Looking out into the world as if they're the bad guys and we're the good guys. And the solution to the battle if we think that way, is to help the world undergo some kind of moral and ethical reform so that they can do good things just like we do. It's a battle of the hearts, our hearts. It's a battle of actually seeing that we are actually no different to the bad guys. We are all the bad guys apart from the grace of God in Christ. The goal of Christian discipleship is not to be morally better at doing, but simply to learn more of what it means to abide in the Father and to love him, to desire to do his will not out of duty but out of love. Secondly, he calls us to not be fearful. Don't be fearful about the coming of the Antichrist. This kind of us and them mentality can lead to all kinds of distractions from the gospel of grace. And one of these distractions can be an unhealthy interest or maybe even an obsession with end time scenarios. Probably all come across someone at some point who only ever seems to think about how things are going to play out in the future. And often it talks, it involves talking more about the terrible things that are going to happen rather than the good things that we have in Christ. Maybe you have been or still are one of those people. All John wants to reorient our thinking 
in this. An unbalanced interest in end time scenarios is often a sign of fearfulness. We don't really have confidence in the power of God and the gospel as the power of God in the present. Maybe it's grown out of a disillusionment with the present state of the world or what we might feel is an ineffectiveness of the church or, as I said, this us and them mentality where the evil is out there somewhere instead of in our own hearts. Maybe we're more concerned with with protecting our holy huddle than we are in getting our hands dirty by actually going out into the world and proclaiming the gospel of the forgiveness of sins to the people in the world. So his readers have heard talk about a future antichrist. Now maybe when you hear that word, you might immediately think of the beast of Revelation who puts a mark on people's foreheads. Or maybe you think of the man of lawlessness that Paul mentions in Second Thessalonians. But I don't, that's, that, I don't think that's what John is referring to when he uses this word. He's not wanting us to, he's wanting us to move away from end time speculation and focus on the realities of what God is doing among us in the present. To contend for the true gospel in the present. Not worry about whether the true gospel will be there in the future. He's saying don't be fearful of what you're hearing about the supposed coming of a future antichrist. Be concerned about defending the truth of the gospel today against those who are denying Christ today. Antichrist is a word that means something quite different to how it's understood in the popular imagination. Rather than it being some powerful political leader who will take over the world in end times, John tells us very simply in verse 22... Anyone who denies that Jesus is the Christ is the Antichrist. There were some people who were initially involved in these churches that John's writing to, but they left because they weren't willing to hold to the established truth of the gospel, of the message of Jesus as the Messiah, Jesus the Christ that the church is held to. Some of these people maybe had given up on the faith altogether but others were busy promoting their own brands of Christianity, these distortions of the gospel. They were telling people they couldn't trust the message that they had heard from the beginning. They must adopt this new and improved version. We're not to be fearful about what may happen in the future and how much power we feel evil may have in the world, but rather, John says, Put your confidence in what you have heard from the beginning. If someone comes to you with a distortion, with something different, say, no, I've, I've heard the gospel, I know it. It's Jesus Christ who died for my sins, who rose again, he's Lord of all, he's coming to judge the world in righteousness. That's the gospel, I don't need any other gospel, I don't need anything new or improved. See the basis on which... We can have this confidence that the gospel we have is the life-giving power of God. Verse 20, he says, You have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. You know the gospel. You've heard it. You know it. 
And verse 26, the anointing that you receive from him abides in you and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as this anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. This word anointing comes from the word Christ. Christ is the anointed one. And we're told that we have received an anointing from the Father because Christ himself is in us and is among us. It's he who is in us. It's he who enables us to have knowledge, who teaches us about everything. We don't come to believe in Jesus. We don't come to have faith in God or remain true to the gospel because someone has cleverly explained us explained it to us. That's what he means by saying you you don't need someone to teach you. He's not saying forget about coming to church and hearing the sermon or going to Bible study. He's saying it's not it's not actually the teachers, it's not the human teachers themselves that give you this knowledge. It is Christ himself among you, sent by the Father who fills you with his spirit. That's where you know the truth of the gospel of Jesus. Thirdly, he says, rather than be fearful about the predictions of a coming Antichrist, prepare yourself for a better future. Prepare yourself for the coming of Christ. How should we think then about the future if it's not to be fearful about the Antichrist? Well, not with fear, but with confidence. A security for the future, no matter how bad things may come. Whether or not there is a antichrist or not in the future, the reality is, he tells us, you are the children of God. 3 verse 1, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. This is the expression of the Father's great love for us, that instead of treating us as enemies... He's treated us as his children. When we were the antichrists denying the Father and the Son, he poured out his great love for us in Jesus Christ. And this children of God, it's not just a metaphor. Christians are called children of God, but he wants to stress, you're not just called children of God, that is what you are. You really are. Children of God. Anyone who comes to God through Jesus knows him not merely as God, but as Father. Jesus the Son has introduced us to his Father, and we're now members of his family. As children of God then, we can look forward to the day when Jesus appears, and we'll be, we will be like him. Remember the, the call back, uh, Earlier in chapter 2, the call to walk in the same way that he walked. Well, one day we will not only walk as he walked, but we will be as he is. The battle with sin, the battle in our hearts will be over. The contest of our heart's affection will be won because we'll see him face to face. There won't be room for anything else when we see him. I don't know about you, but I'd rather focus on that than to speculate about end-time scenarios. 
And fourthly, we're called to rest in and to live out this identity as children of God as we wait for that day. He tells us that this kind of hope that we have in Christ leads to a desire to express that hope in the way that we live. He who has this hope purifies himself, even as he, even as Jesus is pure. This word purify comes from the language of holiness. It's a term that was used to refer to the ritual washing that a person would undergo when they reached the end of their period of uncleanness. We talked about this just a few weeks ago. This, this washing they would undergo was symbolic of the fact that they were now free to come back into the community, back into the temple, free now to come and approach God without fear and to, to bring their sacrifices and offerings once again. This washing was an outward sign of an inward work of grace, much like we today speak about baptism. So this person with this hope, they purify themselves as he is pure. The object of our hope is Jesus. And so our, our purity reflects that of Jesus. We purify ourselves as he is pure. Or to say it another way, the confidence that we have in living before the face of God is the same confidence that Jesus has. This confidence comes from his sonship, from his love for the Father and his knowing the Father's love for him. And so this confidence before God works out in the way that we live, just as it did for Jesus himself. So we're told in verse 29, you may be sure that anyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. If you want to practice righteousness, you first have to be born of God, be a child of God. Verse 9 of chapter 3, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, which we've seen as not you no longer commit acts of sin, but you no longer walk in the darkness, you now walk in the light of God. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed, Christ is God's seed, abides in him. Christ is in us. And so he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Celebrity rapper Kanye West has apparently, according to the media, recently converted to Christianity. Um, I think his recent, one of his recent tours was, if anything, making a mockery of Christianity. And now he's announced that he's become a Christian. I tend to hold a, a bit of a healthy scepticism whenever I hear news of celebrity conversions. Um, I, I, I prefer to kind of wait and see if there's any kind of lasting fruit that indicates whether that was uh, a genuine thing or whether it's clever marketing to get Christians to buy his albums. Although apparently his pastor is a solid evangelical in the true sense of the word. In other words, not one of those kind of name it, claim it, prosperity preachers who seem to attract the celebrities. But a recent uh, article reports that 
uh, Kanye West has been heard to say a number of times, I won't do the accent, hey man, you can't cuss when you're with me, I'm a born again Christian. Uh, Cuss is the American word for curse or swear. So he's telling people in the industry around him, you can't say those words when you're with me because I'm, I'm born again. Born again is a term that's been tossed around a lot, isn't it? Uh, and in fact, in our garage sale in the books, there was the book by Charles Paulson called Born Again, which kind of started this trend of using this term to refer to maybe a Christian who's a bit more committed than those in the more traditional mainstream circles. There was a recent TV show that was called Born Again Virgin about a lady who decided she was going to be chased until she got married. There's even a cleaning company here in Adelaide called Born Again Carpet Cleaning. So you can get Born Again Carpets by getting them to clean them for you. But whatever popular culture thinks born again is, it's different to what the Bible means by born again. Firstly, to be born again, to be a born again Christian, it's actually a tautology, saying the same thing twice. John's definition of a Christian is someone who is born of God. We need to see that to be a Christian is to have literally died to ourselves and to sin and the world and to have literally been renewed and recreated and born again. And I'm not using the word literally here in the popular sense of figuratively, which is how people use it these days. I mean literally. A Christian has literally died to themselves to the world. They have been crucified with Christ and they are literally a new creature born again. We can't separate being born again from becoming children of the Father in union with the Son. Every other religion has calls people to conversion by taking on a new philosophy, taking on a new way of life. Only the Gospel says you must be born again. In other words, you become a Christian not by what you do, but by what God the Father does in giving you new birth. In union with the Son. Notice that this being born of God means being taken out of one family and brought into another in verse 8 and verse 10. He talks about being of the devil or being even children of the devil. To be of the devil, to be children of the devil, means simply to treat him as your father, to love him, to hear his word, to seek to obey his word instead of the word of God the Father. When we sin, we think we're free, we think we're autonomous, doing what we want, but in reality, we're just under a different master. We're under a master who promises to give us what God the Father offers but he only gives us slavery. The gospel is that we have been rescued from this dark, destructive family, the family of the devil, and we've been adopted into the father's family where we have the full rights and the freedom of sons. 
Secondly, being born again, or being born of God, is evidenced in the transformation of our own lives and our own loves. Not, as Kanye expressed it, how we require others to behave around us. John tells us, how do we know someone's born of God? Well, he says they practice righteousness. Their lives are different. Their lives are transformed. They reflect the character of God himself. If we're children of God, and we are, this righteous character of God himself begins to seep through and to shape what we do so that not only what we do changes, but why we do it changes. We go from selfishness to love, to loving our brother and sister. So we need to heed the warning of 3 verse 7. Little children, let no one deceive you. There are a myriad of gospels on offer, but there's only one true gospel of God's grace in Jesus Christ. Jesus, the Son of God, made flesh, crucified for our sins, raised for our justification. The one who gives the Holy Spirit, and the one who is returning in glory as the judge of the living and the dead. This is the only gospel that can bring us into true sonship with the Father. It's the only gospel that can enable us to live for his glory. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and your promise to us that we know the truth. Because you have made the truth known to us in your Son, the Lord Jesus. And by pouring out your Holy Spirit into our hearts, you have enlightened us to see who you are and to know you. To know that your word is truth, that we can trust what you say. We can trust what you have said in Jesus. We can put all of our confidence in him and not be fearful about the present or the future. Because our lives are secure in him. Father, help us to live as people that have this confidence in our day-to-day living. When we're out in the darkest corners of this world around us, may we be the light that shines the glory of Christ to all around. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing our...